there's one thing I've learned in my journalism career. It's that you you really want to work with good editors and smart people who know how to pursue the most interesting stories. And ultimately, that's the thing that I kind of search for the most. So, you know, I was really flattered when Ben asked me to um, to do the job. And, uh, and you know, it's it's been really exciting to kind of be a part of a, a new media launch. Welcome back to Media Voices, our 250th episode. And this is where I'm going to put in all the celebration sound effects. Fireworks, corks popping, all this kind of stuff. Congratulations to the two of you for making it to 250 episodes. I'm Chris Sutcliffe. I'm Esther Thorpe. And I'm Peter Houston. And that extract you just heard is from my interview with Max Tanney, a media reporter at news startup Semaphore. We spoke about how he came to Semaphore, working with smart people, which I have some experience of. Thank you. Uh, <laughs> I love how you just jumped on that. <laughs> the Venn diagram between media politics, Hollywood, and pretty much everything else in life, which we're about to find out. Um, and Semaphore's attempts to balance out news and opinion, the role of newsletters, and my favourite bit of the interview um, was whether covering the White House was actually anything like the TV show The West Wing. That was fun. <laughs> Very nice. Well, speaking of political debacles <laughs> and interplay between uh, broadcasters and the, and the political engine that fuels them, we're going to be talking about what has been a bad week for broadcasters. And it's important to flag up at this point that everything we're talking about is still developing. So by the time this goes out on Monday, this could all be out of date because we are recording this on the Saturday. It won't be. <laughs> how, how long ago does Isabella Oakshaw feel, though? <laughs> well, you, and you're breaking a massive promise because you said we were going to get back to boring old nuts and bolts media stuff. We are, because regardless of how this plays out over the next two days before this goes out, we're going to be talking about every single bit of this from a trust point of view. So we are, even though we're going to be talking about a developing story, we're going to bring it back to our nuts bring and it bolts. Back, <laughs> bring it back. So, bring it back uh, to you. Esther, where do we even start with this? Do you want oh, to take God. us through, I suppose, a, a, a quick we that timeline? Every week. Where do we even start? Uh, so, so Gary Lineker, who, um, for those that are, are not in the UK, he's presented the BBC's <laughs> football programme Match of the Day since, what, the 90s? He was the uh, face of Walker's Crisps uh, in the UK for many years as well. He's been, quote, taken off hosting duties after tweeting that the language the UK government was using to describe stopping the migrant boats was not dissimilar to that used by 1930s Germany. That's a, a, a policy the UK government are trying to get through at the moment. That is, um, I think we can probably all agree it's pretty horrendous. Mm -hmm. um, he's, Gary Lineker is stepping back until an agreed and clear position on his social media use is made, which is a statement the BBC said on Friday. Um, this has prompted all the other hosts that would normally host Match of the Day to pull out and say that they're not taking part in Saturday's show in solidarity. You know, it's not just the presenters, like a lot of commenters and even teams are actually still deciding whether they're going to basically boycott it in solidarity. Just before, yeah, just before we started recording, Bristol Rovers confirmed that they are not going to be talking oh, to the BBC no. before or after. This is a seismic reaction. This isn't sort of like a storm in a teacup. This is now spilling out beyond the bounds of media commentary and into the realms of public consciousness, which is where we can talk about trust. There are questions here about whether there is rank hypocrisy going on with the BBC and its position on this. Now, why is that 
because other people are allowed to say stuff, but because it's not necessarily against the government position, no one says a word. You know, Andrew Neil said stuff, Lord Sugar said stuff. So there's this this accusation of double standards that as long as you take the establishment line, you're okay to do what you want on social media or otherwise. But if you take a let's say, as I say right, it is, it is a bit <laughs> it is complicated so yeah. i think there's the, the, the kind of the background is is that bbc news has got quite strict impartiality rules um you know their their journalists have got have got to be very very careful about the um the political opinions they put across they can't sort of say either way um but Linux is in quite an interesting position because he's he's contracted by the BBC, but he also works for a number of other media orgs. He's, he's basically a freelancer for them. But he also, um, I didn't realise, he apparently signed a five-year deal with the BBC um, in 2020 where he said he would adhere to their impartiality rules. He gets paid a lot of money. Oh, he gets paid like, it's like 1.3 million to, to work for them. Um, and as part of that, clause but, he had to avoid bringing the BBC into disrepute so Jesus. although th- although there's a lot of people saying well if he tweeted in support of this migration policy they wouldn't have been down on BBC him and, and disrepute. <laughs> so I was listening to Radio on the in the car and there was there was a clause in there I don't know what the wording of the clause but it basically says that if you're a politics reporter you can't be biased politics fair enough but if you're a sports reporter it doesn't actually cover that mm. You can have an opinion. So it's not black and white in that sense. Well, it would also, surely Andrew Neil, for instance, would have fallen under that remit because he was a politics yeah. reporter and he was editor of the very right-leaning title, The Spectator, <laughs> for the duration of his tenure at the yeah, BBC. Yeah, yeah. Now, that's GB News's Andrew Neil, lest we forget. That's GB News's Andrew <laughs> Neil, previous chairman of GB News, Andrew Neil. The biggest issue here is that this this has completely overtaken the root of the issue, which is that yeah, the government absolutely. has put out a horrendous migration policy, that and is now absolutely the point. <laughs> and and if you see the people, I, I mean, I, Chris has correct me on this. I thought this was the first time Amanda Iannucci had been mentioned on the podcast. No, we've quoted day to day before. Um, he said a lot of tropes used by the government, invasion, menace, whatever, are similar to those used by nationalist parties in the 1930s. Germany, uh, Janine Graham, a big issue, says invasion, swarm, hostile environment. I think the problem with that is is Godwin's law, right? Mm. Which is that the longer a debate goes on, the more likely Hitler is to get brought up, um, or the Nazis or fascists or whatever. And the problem with that is the debate just falls apart at that point. There is, an, there is an additional point here, because when you were saying that, I can remember an awful lot of those words being used on the front pages of British newspapers during mm. the migrant crisis in 2016. It was a lot of papers without the government intervention that, that were using words like, you know, we're, we're about to be invaded, there's a swarm coming on their front pages. I believe, was... Uh was thrown so this, around by a couple of people. I mean, yes, you know, the government language is is horrendous here. But my goodness me, we've we've been dealing with this in this country for at least the last decade. And the the point is, as both of you have made clear here, that the the reaction to Lineker's tweet has masked that it has taken over. It's become the story in yeah, and of itself. And there was a there's I'm going to read out a uh, a tweet here from um, the new head of the bureau local Gareth Davis, who says so he got a BBC breaking news alert. And Gareth said, so actually it's a BBC news alert about a BBC story about a former BBC director's take on how the BBC caused a crisis on a BBC show by taking a BBC presenter off air. So we're no longer now talking about no, absolutely. the government and its inhumane response to small boats. We're talking about the BBC and that is undermining trust in the BBC. And I don't know, not to get all tinfoil hat, that that is entirely accidental. 
No, it's not. It's giving them cover to talk about something. I mean, you know what? The boats thing in the in the first place. It's just that's just Britain's version of Trump's wall. They're risking their lives, and what are we doing? We're yeah. just, oh, it's just. We're awful. saying if you come here, awful. we're going to ignore the fact that you're being sort of enslaved, and you know you don't yeah, get access to any of our ridiculous. modern slavery laws and protections. Oh, it's it's, it's Absolute just... bullshit. But you're right, Chris. And what Charlotte Henry put this perfectly in a, in the edition. She says Gary Lineker is not the story. Mm. The focus on Gary Lineker is a failure, say that again, a failure by certain outlets. And it, for her, she says it's time to lead on the real story. See, this is the thing we could get really I'm just off to bang my head against the wall here, okay? This, thing with, this is why I'm trying to keep it so focused on the media side, because we could get so pissed off about this. I thought that this whole dehumanisation of, of migrants and refugees would have ended with the death of Alan Kurdi years ago when, you know, his dead body was put on the front pages of papers. But no, that seems to have forgotten and that Absolutely is infuriating. Not. But the reality here, I think, is, you know, we were talking about it as, as being a mask there, is one of trust in the BBC, which has been beleaguered now for years. But I do think it's important that we separate out the people who are responsible for this crisis at the BBC from the BBC itself. I've seen so many people denigrate it as a whole and say, you know, it's not fit for purpose. Parts of the BBC, BBC World Service, parts of BBC News do a fantastic and very vital job. And when we tar it with this brush mm. of being completely unreliable, we're actually playing into the hands of the people yeah. who want to see it denigrated. You know, there's, we shouldn't be mad at the BBC, not that there is such a you know thing, it's so monolithic you can't really talk about it as such. We should be mad at this fruity little cabal of Tory-adjacent people parachuted in by the Conservative government who are doing their best to run it into the ground. They are between a bit of a rock and a hard place with this because they, they if they enforce a policy, they need to enforce it consistently. Yeah. And <laughs> well, then Richard Sharp, chairman, is going to oh. be <laughs> out on his arse straight away, which I, did, I mean, potentially he will be because he facilitated an £800,000 loan for Boris Johnson and didn't declare it when he was going for the job. Uh, Regardless of what you think of, I suppose, them as, as individuals, I think we can all agree that Tim Davey, Director General, has made an arse of this entire thing. Where does the book stop? That is such a dereliction of duty on his part. And to be honest, this could have all changed a lot in the next 48 hours before the episode goes out. So, Listen, um, yeah, I will see you, I will see you both back here. <laughs> I'll see you both back here at 8 p.m. on Sunday night to re-record an episode <laughs> when this has all been settled. But listen, Esther, you pointed out that there's a very nice segue from that talk in Trust in the BBC to what's going on in Fox News. So Fox News um, has found itself embroiled in a $1.6 billion defamation case brought against it by voting machine company Dominion Voting Systems. Um, so when the 2020... Uh, when when Biden defeated Trump in 2020 and um, the Capitol riots happened, um, voting uh, Fox News was basically saying, "Oh well, you know, there's probably an error with the voting systems. Like, you know, they've they've not counted loads of Trump votes." So the voting <laughs> company has just brought this lawsuit up and been like, "You you can't say that and like get away with saying it." Um, and as part of that lawsuit, all these messages have come out from top Fox News execs, you know, Rupert Murdoch, all, all that lot. Um, and all these top hosts, including people like Tucker Carlson and, and Sean Hannity, have been making these really derogatory comments about Trump behind the scenes, saying that they absolutely hate him, they can't stand him, they think he's lying. But then they'll go on air and mm. reinforce the falsehoods and reinforce what he was saying. Um, well, why were they doing that? Because some of the messages have, have provided a uh, motivation for why they've been doing that, which actually does have a media business model angle. Yeah, yeah. And they've, they've all just sat there and said, well, we can't not put out that we believe Trump because um, otherwise our viewers are going to leave us for networks that are supporting him. What's well, just culture so, I mean, wars? Goodness me. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, PC, you were shaking your head quite vigorously there. Now, which of the many thousands of angles you can take here are you going to grab? Well, what you just said a minute ago, it's culture wars as a business model. Mm. And that is, that's part of the, it's not the BBC, but part of the problem in the UK is that, that our, our press is engaging in that. Mm. And then Fox News has definitely been engaging in that and Oan and all these other ones. And it's got somehow, somewhere, someone has got to stop this outrage engine. I just want to read this this uh, statement here from the Harvard Law Professor Lawrence H. Tribe, which is fantastic. He says... That's a great name. He says, I have never seen a defamation case with such overwhelming proof that the defendant admitted in writing that it was making up fake information in order to increase its viewership and its revenues. Fox and its producers and performers were lying as part of their business model. But Fox Fox are trying to wriggle out of it by saying, oh, we're not, we're not a news channel, we're an entertainment channel. <laughs> Jesus, wait. Which yeah. I think I think just I'm says I'm just off to bang my head on the wall again, sorry. <laughs> I actually hope that there's enough evidence here that, that they actually get nailed on this. Oh, does that, does that contravene our impartiality policy <laughs> that you want Fox Well, it's, I, this is why I thought the, the contrast was so interesting because you've got the BBC that's like impartiality at all costs and then you've got Fox News just on the flip side that's like, oh no, this isn't news, this is entertainment. Peter, we're all freelancers for media voices. We can say what we want. Hey, and speaking Wait. of millions of pounds. <laughs> oh, nice segue. GB News, which we have spoken about endlessly over the past two years because it's of its challenger status within the news market in the UK and also because you know, of its many, many controversies. So the broadcast has reported losses 10 times greater than revenue for its first year on air. It made total revenues of around 3.5 million against a 31 million pound loss. Uh, It's been struggling to find an audience. Its average monthly reach is 2.32 million. And if you remember a couple of months ago, that was basically concentrated around a couple of flagship programs. So Esther, you've pointed out, I think that to be fair, this is its first year and few news organizations actually yeah, as fun like as as funny as this is, because you know, GB, GB News is. How would you politely describe them for people who aren't in the UK? Absolute. F- Not Fox News level, but they're they're sort of aspiring. It's, I was going to gonna say that kind of it's Fox News light. Yeah, it is only year one. Very few media organisations are profitable that quickly. Um, yeah, you could you could pick out all sorts of examples of startups that have got a five year plan to be profitable. So. Um, they are apparently um, going much heavier into their digital presence. What GB News? Yeah. Well, they they already say that all the views are online, right? They've been very heavy on. Oh, you're not counting our YouTube views. <laughs> blah, blah, blah. Yeah. Why do we have to talk about this crap? It just makes me feel like an old guy shouting at clouds. I just noise <laughs> a crap out of me. Welcome to Media Voices 250th episode, everybody. Oh. And now to news in brief, very brief, and there's a fascinating piece on TechCrunch this week about Artifact, which is a new news aggregator from Instagram co-founder Kevin Systrom. Now, we don't have time here to go into the specifics of it, but I was struck by the language that he's using to describe the news ecosystem. He's saying it's broken, quote-unquote, biased. What's he so, been listening to this episode? <laughs> which is exactly the language we heard ahead of launch from aggregators like News. You remember, remember News, yeah, news Corp's uh, ill-fated yeah, aggregator, which was supposed to be non-biased and then ended up being the most biased of all. So it's interesting that that is still the perception of news aggregation online. So we'll keep an eye on that. Uh, there's a great piece this week in a rap about how Vice, Fox and BuzzFeed blew the future of the media. 
I mean, it's interesting. It touches on BuzzFeed's sheer price collapse, vices $30 million in debt, departure of Nancy Dewok, uh, Vox fire sale, all the things that we know about that's going wrong with these organisations. But I think what's really come through is that their problem was, you know, VC funding based on over-promising and under-delivering. Uh, and it was just really interesting to read that in the context of this week of our biggest newspaper publishing group, Reach, in the UK, announcing a 27% drop in operating profit. But, but you're still seeing them saying, oh, we're building on our digital foundations and customer value and data and the future is bright. And it's like, guys, let's just let's talk honestly about this stuff. So and don't put, don't put all your um, all your money, if you're Vox, in Silicon Valley Bank. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, God, we could talk about that again for another, like, four hours. Okay. I mean, as you may have gathered from this episode, there was a lot of media news this week. Uh, but my favourite was actually an announcement about the launch of a new climate media company called Heatmap News. So it's co-founded by a team of former The Week executives, um, including former editor-in-chief uh, Nico Loricella, um, North American CEO Randy Siegel, and CEO Sarah O'Connor. So the startup has raised $4 million in a Series A funding round and is actually starting, I thought it was really interesting, by focusing exclusively on selling consumer subscriptions. So I thought that was a great, great mission, great launch. Um, and yeah, good luck to them. Fantastic. And I just want to win this news roundup on a uh, fantastic tweet that I've just seen. So Charlotte Colombo has said, eating nothing but Walker's crisps for the next 24 hours in solidarity with Gary Lineker. <laughs> <laughs> This week I spoke to Semaphore's media reporter Max Tanny. I asked him about covering media and politics, about the Semaphore story format, but first I asked Max how he came to be at Semaphore. I was previously a reporter with Politico uh, as a part of uh, our Politico's White House team. Uh, I wrote a daily newsletter on the uh, Biden administration uh, called West Wing Playbook. You know, we really focused a lot on Biden and the media and his relationship with the media. And uh, so, I, you know, I, I've kind of, even though that was a political reporting job, um, it was, we found that people were really, really interested in stories about the relationship between Biden and the press and, and you know, how the press covers um, covers the president. Uh, you know, before that, I was a I, I was a media reporter. That was my background um, at the Daily Beast. You know, where I covered a lot of stuff about New York uh, media, New York, uh, and uh, of course uh, the relationship between uh, Donald Trump uh, and the media, um, which is obviously uh, <laughs> one of the more fun. yes, one of the more interesting uh, storylines of the previous administration. So I, I've really been focused on media coverage, the coverage, uh, the relationships between uh, prominent, uh, primarily American political media figures and uh, in the press, and um, and so you know when I got the opportunity to join Semaphore. As a media reporter, uh, I thought it was really exciting because you know Ben Smith obviously was a uh, yeah. who's one of the co-founders and uh, the editor in chief was a tremendous media columnist at the New York Times. And um, you know, if there's one thing I've learned in my journalism career, it's that you you really want to work with good editors and smart people who know how to pursue the most interesting stories. And ultimately, that's the thing that I kind of search for the most. So, you know, I was really flattered when Ben asked me to um, to do the job. And, uh, and you know, it's it's been really exciting to kind of be a part of a, a new media launch. I love that idea. I, I always try and work with people that are smarter, yep. uh, at least in, in some ways smarter than you. I love that. 
I've got I've got a question for you that's got nothing to do with anything other than my own interest. Is the West Wing anything like the TV show The West Wing? <laughs> <laughs> I think that it's uh, it, it is certainly full of really smart, uh, you know, really smart. Particularly, you know, this this administration really does have. It's full of a lot of people with decades of political experience, people who are who have worked in previous Democratic administrations, the Clinton administration and the Obama administration. So it certainly more closely resembles the television show probably than the last administration did. <laughs> um, but, uh, but, you know, what I will say is uh, I feel like the West Wing television show, most of the staffers were young or you know in their prime or you know kind of yeah. middle-aged yeah. uh in a way and you know were kind of smart at the top of their careers this white house really is full at, particularly at the top you know with people who are um who are a little bit older and uh you know obviously he's the oldest president we've ever had and yeah. um you know a lot of the staff are people who've been with him for a long time so i don't think it's as quippy uh or as kind of quick at least in my experience, this White House as well is um, is quite serious. Uh, you know what I found in my time covering them is they didn't have much of a sense of humor about um, you know when we did cute kind of cute stories about them. Uh, I don't know if they uh, necessarily loved that, and so you know I, I found them to be it's a serious adult uh, administration. So you know maybe not like full of necessarily. The, young, uh, arrogant uh, staffers, as you'll kind of see on the West Wing. It's more of kind of uh, seasoned, older hands. Yeah. So that, that that was my experience. But, you know, definitely uh, there, there are a few similarities here and there. <laughs> uh, I mean, I guess I'm, I'd say you're, you're smart for one to work with smart people, but uh, Ben's obviously hired you because your your experience is, is kind of a perfectly pitched for Semaphore with that kind of global news idea, but also the media beat. Does that idea that you've covered politics in the past feed into what you're doing in the media side? Oh, absolutely. I think um, what Ben and I really agree on is that media, the most interesting media stories are always kind of yoked uh, or, you know, kind of tied to something else, Um, you know, whether it be a media and politics story. So a, it's a media story that's really a political story or a, a media and technology story or a media and entertainment story. Um, you know, what we found is it really helps to think about media as kind of vehicles for some of these other beats. And that's one of the things that's really fun for me is that I get to kind of, you know, some days I'm covering political stories, some days I'm covering technology or some you know wall street stories and sometimes i get to dabble a little bit in in hollywood as well so it's really fun to uh you know i i really enjoy i i really enjoy that element but i do think it really really helps to have that political backbone and particularly i mean i i think one of the things that i've learned as well is you know there is just this class of you know a few thousand people that kind of seamlessly move between politics and media, people in in politics who really their sole job is focusing on media coverage or, you know, the depictions of, you know, whoever they're working for in, in the media. So it really helps to 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 know all of those players. And it's it's really helpful also as a media reporter to have covered, you know, some other topics so you understand 
how the reporters and editors on those beats do their job. Um, and oh. so I, I, I found it to be a really fun and informative experience, you know, getting to spend a lot of time in Washington and, and cover the White House, which is, you know, a whole different, uh, whole different beast. And, and also, you know, in this administration in particular is, is a bit different than, um, than, than other previous administrations, obviously, particularly the last one, but it's more different than the Obama administration than, than people kind of realize. So um, it's mm. really, it, it is really helpful to have that context. Going back to semaphore. Um, so semaphore's got this kind of global news idea, but the newsletter strategy for semaphore in particular is really fairly niche down. So, you know, there's, there's the kind of flagship, which is everything, but then you've right. got the media beat and then you've got the Africa beat and the technology mm -hmm. beat and the business beat. I mean, it's obviously very deliberate, but is it something that you talk a lot about as to how you can work inside that niche, but also inside uh, Semaphore's broader uh, mandate? Yeah, I think that we are always thinking, you know, part of the founding ethos of this company and something that uh, we are striving to do is uh, try to have a global global focus and not be necessarily so U.S. centric uh, yeah. or even just focused on, you know, just New York and Washington media, which are their own, you know, you could have newsletters and there are that are just focused on, um, on those uh, in particular. So we do try to remember that there are, that, that part of the reason why we want to exist is to be a global um, publication. Obviously, we feel the most comfortable. I don't want to speak for others, but, you know, for, for me personally, I I feel most comfortable, um, you know, in U.S. media stories because I understand the landscape really well. But, you know, we, we've had a few Chinese, you know, stories about Chinese media. Um, you know, we've, we've done a little, we've dabbled a little bit in U.K. media with a little bit of coverage of, of The Guardian and a little bit of the FT. Um, and obviously, we, we were at Davos. So yeah, I, I guess to answer your question, I think the thing that unites all of the newsletters is we are really trying to, we're trying to balance a few things. We want to be something that insiders and people, um, you know, in Washington and New York and in Hollywood read. But, you know, we also, we there are some publications that are content to stop there. Um, and for us, I think everybody on the Semaphore team is constantly thinking about what what do our what are our global readers interested in? Um, how do we reach them? What are the stories that, that they're interested in? And and how do we make sure that we are covering stories that tap into different? Obviously, when you say global, you know when, when you talk about a global market, it's obviously there are very few stories that uh, that every single um, person in the world might be interested in. Uh, so mm. uh, so we just want to, I think, with all of our newsletters, make sure that we are continuing to branch out and and not close ourselves off to global media ideas just because maybe they're they're not the most familiar um it just means that we'll ha we have to invest more time and effort in reporting them so uh, i think that's the thing that kind of unites all of our newsletters the global focus is the the media newsletter is is weekly is that right yeah every sunday night um east coast time uh we, we generally tend to publish somewhere between 6 and 8 uh, p.m. on Sunday nights, uh, which I think we like to do because it's a bit of a, well, Ben used to publish his New York Times column around then. And it, it kind of, it's it gives us the ability to kind of set the table for the week. Yeah. And, um, you know, we found that that, that time uh, is uh, particularly resonant for, for an East Coast audience and um, then for people waking up in 
you know, waking up uh, on Monday morning with it in their inbox. I think it's a, um, it's, it can be a fun little treat. It's interesting to see sometimes the newsletters immediately hit and they take off and people are reading them, you know, right after they land in their inbox. But some like this week's had a bit of a, uh, a slower burn and people started to discover it, the pieces kind of over the course of the next few days. But yeah, we publish every Sunday night. How do you find writing for newsletters like that? You know, the idea that people can contact you and comment and they've got a direct line. <laughs> you know, I, I really love writing for a newsletter audience for a few reasons. I think one of the things that's really nice about a newsletter is everybody who is clicking to open the story has has opted in um, or someone has forwarded it along to them. So there's a level of engagement that's higher than, you know, a few years ago, most people working in media were probably chasing traffic on Facebook uh, maybe five years ago. And uh, you really had to write for a kind of broad Facebook audience or something that was going to go vi that you wanted to go viral or something like that. And um, I think that newsletters are really, newsletter audiences are, are really special because um, they already, you know, they're presumably they already know a lot about you. They've opted into receiving something from you every week or, you know, biweekly or, or whatever it might be. So uh, one thing that I really, really love is you do get that immediate impact when things land in the newsletter and then someone texts me, you know, or gives me a call five minutes later and they've already read it. To me, that's really, really special. And, um, you know, they don't, those people don't have to be on Facebook or on Twitter and, you know, they see your story that way. I found that audiences are more engaged in newsletters. The other thing I really like about newsletters too, because I've worked on now on, on two of them for slightly different audiences, is you can kind of create a bit of a community around the newsletter. There are certain storylines or threads that you can kind of keep going week after week or, you know, when I was at West Wing Playbook day after day. And people start to understand the language of the newsletters, the rhythms, what they can expect in it. And so you can kind of create your own uh, little world and little community. And that's just, to me, something that you wouldn't be able to get um, in an article or something like that. So there's a reason why it's so appealing, I think, to so many uh, reporters and journalists is, um, you know, having an engaged audience and then being able to kind of create both the dialogue and kind of community through that. So I, I personally knew writing for newsletters, it's one of my favorite formats. The only one I'm, I'm sorry, I'm rambling at you, but the one, the only other downside is it's a bit like old school print where, you know, once it's out, once it's out there, you can't go back and fix typos. If you've, you know, if you've messed something up in, in the newsletter, there's no, there's really no going back. Yeah. Yeah. That can be really great because it causes at least me to be even more careful. Your, your mistakes are, are there in uh, in virtual ink um, yeah, kind of can't yeah, be erased. Yeah. So one of the things that Semaphore is known for is your new format, the Semaform article. First off, could you explain that to anyone that hasn't heard <laughs> about it before? Yes. What What's the format? What's the idea behind it? Yeah. Um, the The format basically, um, you know, for 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 people who haven't quite seen it yet. You know, most news stories are written in an inverted pyramid style, which is the most important, or these are da most daily news stories are written in the kind of inverted pyramid, right? Which is most important information at the top, that's the lead. And then, you know, a kind of descending descending pyramid of context and quotes and and, and whatnot. And um, 
what we what we've tried to do is kind of get ourselves out of that particular format and also to take advantage of the expertise of our journalists and kind of uh, pull back the the curtain a little bit and allow us to strip away the the veil of uh, of objectivity. So what I mean by that is we'll generally start an article with a section that's just it's you know titled either the news or the scoop, which basically is you know reveals the the what you need to know. X thing happened, and then after that we'll have a view from the author section, which is you know in my case it's Max's view. So that allows me to really basically put my it's exactly what it sounds like, which is uh, the first few graphs will have uh, you know the news, the next will be kind of my take on on what's kind of going on, and what's really nice about that is. It means I don't have to really launder my opinion through the kind of the rest of the B yeah. matter, right? Like it's yep. not, yep. Yep. you know, you're not saying, oh, this comes as X, Y, Z thing is happening. And really that context is doesn't really maybe necessarily have anything to do with the actual news. It's more of my view of how things are playing out, but without explicitly saying it. What we're trying to do with the semaphore is basically strip that away and say, hey, this is the news stuff. This is exactly what's objectively happening. After that, the context, all the other information, that's how I'm thinking about things. But then we'll have another segment afterwards, which is either room for disagreement, someone who says what I am, you know, who thinks my view is complete bullshit, or we'll have a view from from Hollywood or from, you know, Cleveland, Ohio, or from London. We think that the value of that is really explaining to readers how exactly we're thinking about it, um, being as transparent as we possibly can with our reporting, and kind of just trying to break out of the of the traditional molds for stories that's existed for a hundred years, and and really kind of lay it out for our readers and, and and play around with with different formats that allow them to know exactly how we're thinking about things and what the actual kind of objective news is. And I think it's been really interesting uh, for me and and kind of exciting, and it kind of allows me to get away with a little bit more. There are certain times where if I was trying to you know, you'll get a call from a spokesperson after a story publishes, you publish a traditional story, and they'll say, they'll argue with you over the context of certain things. Now, for me, it's essentially, I'm not trying to hide anything from the readers. They can see, this is my view. If you disagree with it, that's completely fine. But but the premise of the story itself is true. So I feel like it allows readers to engage on kind of different levels. And um, it's not a Phys- astrophysics or you know anything super complicated we're not totally game changing but we think it it really it helps along the margins with letting readers know what we know and parse what's opinion from fact and how people in different parts of the world are uh, or different parts of the country or different parts of the industry are feeling about you know this this thing that we've written about so i think it's been a lot of fun actively finding someone that disagrees with you does that make you better at what you do? <laughs> I think, yeah, absolutely. It's really important for journalists to second guess and stress test everything that they're writing. It's a really dangerous zone when you talk to a lot of people who all feel the same type of way about things. <laughs> it's not good for obvious reasons, and um, it can it can lead to misleading stories. I think it is good for us always to have a room for disagreement. And sometimes we don't even search for, we're not even searching for external voices. I think in this last story that I I wrote a story about Spotify and their massive investment in trying to become the biggest podcast platform and um, producer in the world. And I think in the room for disagreement section this week, 
I don't even think we had a voice from someone else. It was just me disagreeing with myself, um, which I uh, I actually kind of enjoy as well because I, I I can see things from multiple perspectives, and so it's nice for me to be able to write kind of a for and, and against case. And you know, just as someone who personally, I think, and most journalists feel this way, like to argue and think differently and, and push themselves to, to think about things a little bit differently. It's a really fun exercise too, to not even, you know, necessarily have a, a quote or something from someone else, but to actively try to disagree with yourself and draw out the other case. I love that. Yeah. Looking at the media landscape at the moment is it's kind of crazy in all sorts of different ways. How do you keep up with everything that's going on? How do you, <laughs> how do you focus on what's <laughs> It's, I guess what's important. I, I've been a media reporter specifically for about six years. When I was on the White House team at Politico, I was still doing media reporting as well, obviously yeah. as part of the newsletter. And then also I wrote a, a few articles for Politico proper and for the magazine. I feel like I've been reporting on the industry for about six years. And you know, the thing that I've learned is that there are obviously going to be things that slip through the cracks. People are texting me, uh, you know, they'll text me about something that's going on. I'm like, what? What? I didn't even know, wasn't even aware of that. Yeah. Um, and yeah. I actually think it's become a bit more challenging. Uh, you know, there are a lot more newsletters. There are a lot more podcasts. Media has fragmented even further over the past few years, which makes it difficult to keep up with everything. I think the best thing to do, at least from my perspective, for my job is to maintain a broad and diverse group of contacts, many of whom, you know, I mean, a lot of the ways I get news beyond reading every newsletter that I can and subscribing to Twitter and sometimes watching some TV and listening to podcasts and, you know, doing what everybody does and, you know, still trying to check the home pages of various uh, publications. You know, it's really helpful for me to have broad group of contacts who know that I'm interested in stuff. There was news that Vice was getting, I'm sorry, Vice, the company, was receiving uh, kind of essentially a bailout from from Fortress, which is one of their investors. And I hadn't seen the story, but, you know, two people texted me, you know, when I was at dinner, basically, you know, sending me the article. And I don't think I would have seen it otherwise because I didn't see people tweeting about it. And I guess it would have been maybe in one of the newsletters in a few days, but it's just helpful to have contacts who are who um, in the industry who are sending me things who know I'm interested. Yeah. So that's the best way to keep up. But I mean, Frankly, it's impossible and <laughs> things are going to slip through the cracks. And I know that there are certain times I'm going to be asked about stuff and I'm like, I just haven't been following that one as closely as I should have. So I do my best by reading and listening and watching as much as I can all day long. Excellent. So we ask our guests always one final question of her recommendation uh, of media that they've loved, whether it's a movie or a book or a podcast or an article. So what would you recommend for our listeners? That's really, uh, that's a, that's a great question. I have two, two things that I'm thinking about in media, both very different. I'm really looking forward to reading this new book on the Redstones, the family that owns uh, CBS for, um, for a long mm -hmm. time. I believe it just came out. I haven't gotten the chance to read it yet, but I've seen some of the excerpts and reviews and it's written by two reporters from the New York Times who cover media, um, Jim Stewart and then 
I think, is it Rachel Abrams? I know her, but I don't know if I'm butchering her last yeah. name. But they're both fantastic reporters on the media beat, and they've written uh, what, what appears to be just a really juicy and interesting book about how media has changed over the past few years through oh. the past few decades, you know, through this kind of interesting family and juicy family drama, which, uh, you know, so if that's your, you know, if that's the kind of thing you're interested in, if you loved Succession and something like that, <laughs> it seems like this is going to be just um, this real is, world. Oh, yeah. And I can't wait. Have you have you uh, have you gotten the chance to to see any some any of this stuff yet? I haven't actually. I haven't. All right, I'll have to send you some of the um, uh, some of the excerpts because I mean, it just it looks fantastic. And then the the other thing that I am really like enjoying recently, which I'm sure I, I'm really late to this, but I recently started. Um, <laughs> I recently got a letterboxed. Uh, I've been really enjoying the kind of interesting, fun uh, community on there for uh, you know reviewing movies. I, I feel like social media is a bit stale. I felt that kind of increasingly. Um, I'm a bit too old for TikTok, uh, and <laughs> I. Uh, we all? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Well, I feel like if you're like over the age of twenty, it's already um, yeah, started. Too- pushing it a little bit and I felt uh, you know Twitter is uh, I feel increasingly difficult to use um, you know with all the changes that have been made since since Elon Musk took over the reason I like Letterbox is because I feel like it's a small but engaged interesting community and I've just been discovering a lot of movies love to see what all my friends are watching and I'm totally late to the game but uh, but those are the two things in happening in media that I have found to be the most enjoyable in the last uh, few weeks We have just set up a self-serve ad slot in our daily newsletter, The Media Roundup, and it took me ages, so please have a look at it. <laughs> um, if you're a subscriber, you can just click through the link on the top slot in the newsletter to book it. Um, if you aren't a subscriber, why not? Um, you can find out more on the newsletter tab on voices.media, or you can even book the slot directly through our Ko-Fi page, ko-fi.com slash media voices. Uh, but please subscribe to our newsletter because it's great and has awesome engagement and open rates. So you need to join everybody else who's getting the top four media stories every day in their inbox. But until next week, when we're going to be back with our 251st episode, unbelievably, (laughs) hopefully a cheerier look (laughs) at some of the more specific and tangible and practical aspects of media business models and the media world in general. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you for being a fan of Media Voices for as long as you have been. Please do spread the word about our 250th episode and... Goodbye. <laughs>